Thanks, Paul. It was pointed out to me after my last sermon that not once had I used Leviticus in my entire sermon. And first off, thanks, Paul, for that. No, my uh, enthusiasm for Leviticus is not waning. So I've doubled down for this sermon. And my entire sermon is going to basically be revolving around Leviticus 13 and 14. Now, that section is about biblical leprosy, identification, and the cleansing of the individual. That doesn't seem like a very um, captivating section of scripture. It's been misused in the past to basically form leper colonies, push people out who develop leprosy. It's been used to justify in in just in the last year, quarantining. Both of those, not at all the point. Doesn't capture it, doesn't mean it, doesn't work. So, this passage is beautiful, and I think that I want to show some of that to you. I'm not the only person who thinks so, so So I'm just going to read you a quote from Jim Staley. He's talking about this specific passage in this quote. Out of all the stories in Scripture that hint at the gospel of the Messiah, this one ranks up there in the top four, along with the story of Joseph, Jonah, and the binding of Isaac. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, I thank you today that we get to gather together to be here with you, that your presence is here, that you are moving as we are here together. I just thank you for all that you've done and poured into us. And I pray that, this, um, that we will just continue to grow and learn your scripture as we go. In your name, amen. So, before I move into the, the sermon, I want to remind us of a couple of the, the sermons that have come in just in the last couple of weeks. Um, a couple of weeks ago, my father taught on salvation and the fact that there is a corporateness to salvation. It's much less about the emphasis on the individual. It's much more about the corporateness of being saved, that we're brought into something not as an individual, but as a group, something there that is part of God's family. Two, Wayne recently preached, and when he did, he pointed out to us that when we are sharing about the thing that has captivated us, that we need to remember how significant what has happened to us, and we want to share that with others. It's not about um, a sense of guilt that I just need to do it, but it's about an enthusiasm for what's been done for us and sharing that with others. And then last week, Daryl shared with us about death and resurrection. Um, He sort of emphasized it around the idea of things that have been spoken over us and not letting those die. Um, We're going to go a slightly different direction today. But God is in the business of resurrecting things. He is about bringing life where there wasn't before. Where there was and then there wasn't, and he brings it back. That is who our God is. And then thank you, Warren. Warren also talks to, to us, shared this morning about the uh, fact that he doesn't, God doesn't leave us where we are, but he brings us into something new. Something, you know, he doesn't leave us trapped, but brings us out. And so I, I think as we go through, you will see all of those, past, those things sort of coming and culminating, hopefully in this sermon. Anytime we talk about the law, it's always really helpful to just sort of get um, our footing as to when the law was given. So I know you know this, but I'm just going to recap for you. God meets with Moses on Mount Sinai, and he says to him, Moses, I'm thinking, 
about saving the people of Israel. But I'm concerned that they're not going to be quite what I want them to be. So here's a big contract. Take this contract, take it down to the people. If they sign this contract, agree to all the terms, then I'll save them. Moses brings it down. They have a public reading. There's a lot of argumentation back and forth. But people do finally sign it. And then God saves them. No, that's not how it happens, right? God saves the people, and then the law is given. The law isn't for salvation. God saves the people without that. The salvation is for something different, right? The, the law is for something different. The law is given in the context of the fact that now God is going to dwell with his people. And he, they need to know what does it like to have a relationship where he is right there with them. How do you behave with the creator of the universe living next door to you? What does that look like? How are you going to proceed with that? So God's presence is now in their midst. And that means that we have to understand the holiness of God. And if you go into Leviticus, it's this constant mantra of be holy because I am holy. Do this because I am holy. It is teaching the people what God is like and how they are to live to be like him, to know what that relationship looks like. So I think one of the real struggles when we come to these passages is it's really hard to relate to in our day and age. So people who have spent a lot of time meditating on this have looked at it and said, what are these procedures like in our day? And people have come to conclusions. They are like dealing with high-powered lasers, hazardous chemicals, and radioactive materials. And that may sound strange to us, but we have, if, you, if you work in a lab or anything with these type of dangerous things, you don't just walk up to it. There are steps and procedures to be done to work with them. And so you have to know what's done, and sometimes those procedures seem pretty arbitrary. But someone at some point has discovered that there are certain steps that need to be done to keep you safe. So, in this case, you might need something like a hazmat suit. And I was loving to, I really wanted to wear this, but it's just not going to work with the mic. So, but I brought it along, just as a visual aid here, and I'll see whether I can assemble it as we go. First try. And you'll notice the priests are actually given a little something like a hazmat suit, right? They're given a special little um, uniform that's just for them. It's not for when they're outside of the temple. It's just for them. They don't get the special suit with little... I'm not going to get this other one, am I? Hmm. There it is. Got it. All right. So when you go into certain areas, you need protection. You need those things that help you to keep you safe as you go forward. And that's really important and a helpful way, hopefully, for as we frame what we think about the ideas that are presented to us in Leviticus. So, for instance, Leviticus 6, 24 to 27. The Lord spoke to, saying, to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. 
in a holy place, it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy, and when any of its blood is splashed in a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. So you have to keep it. The things that are contaminated have to be kept in the places that are in those things. Does that make sense? So the idea is, is you don't just, once something touches these type of things, you can't just bring it back out. It's dangerous at that point. So you have to do certain cleaning procedures before you can move things back out. Very much like what we deal with when we're dealing with, say, a containment zone. There are certain procedures that must be done to allow us to both enter and to exit from those environments. Leviticus 16, 12 is another one to look at. Now, this one here, this is the Day of Atonement. It's the one day of the year that the priest gets to go into the Holy of Holies. On that day, when you come into that one, you think, this is a great thing. This is really exciting. But when you read what actually is said, you're like, wow, this is intense. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he should bring it inside of the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. He has to have shielding just to go into that area. There are certain procedures and protections put in place because God is so holy that you cannot just approach him without being careful. And I think that's one of the reasons I love Leviticus so much is because it's so easy now to realize that we get to go into that presence and lose how significant that is. We lose how much it means to walk in to God's presence. So, it's also important to orient ourselves. Uh, Andrew, next slide, slide for me. There are basically three sort of large, broad categories of what you can be. The majority of the Israelites are what are considered clean, and those are the things that are around. That means you are not contaminated, but you are not allowed to go into the holy things. And then there are unclean things, and those unclean things have to be kept outside. That's where you do it, and so there's a geography to that. There's this clean area, which is the majority of the camp. There's the holy areas, and then there's the areas outside of the camp, which are unclean. And if you give me the next slide, Zadok, or I'm sorry, Andrew, sorry. You'll see this sort of in the coloring. I'm, I apologize. I know it's a little on the small side, but in the very, very center, you have the brightest white spot. That is the holy of holies. It is the most holy thing. You don't go into that area except for one time a year and one person and then you move progressively outwards, you get less and less sort of like restrictions as to how you approach until you're actually outside of the camp and you're into this area that is unclean. And then even beyond that are the rest of the nations. And so you're separated. And so what I want to focus on today, because this is, you know, leprosy we're talking about here, this is about uncleanness and separation. Leviticus fifteen thirty one. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. And again, this is, this is the point, right? Which is, there is an area that is where God is, and you don't want to cross-contaminate, and so you keep that area out. You keep those things that are not like they're supposed to be outside of the camp. They're separated. 
Numbers 5, 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through the contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of what I, which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp, as the Lord, Moses, Lord said to Moses. So the people of Israel did. So there is this separation of certain things where they are unclean and they have to be put outside. Now, Again, this is so hard to just sort of like wrap our head around. It feels so um, contrary to the way we would want to treat people who are going through certain things. And so this is, this is just one that we struggle with a lot. I think one of the ways potentially to sort of think about this is to imagine that you are a water bottle. You are a water bottle. You are to keep the fluids that are inside of you inside of you that keep you alive. And if you keep them inside of you, you're right. But if you start leaking them, start losing them, you've got problems. They're contaminated. Which is why when you get into the, the, the diagnosis of leprosy, it makes it constantly clear that it says, is it deeper than the skin? It's not just a mark on the outside. It's actually contaminated from the outer coating deeper. It's penetrated inside of you. It is more than just an outward-like distinguishing mark. It is moved past. And the priest is the one identifying this. And so there's white with white hair, there's white with red, with, but it's always got to have white hair unless it's on your forehead in which is yellow hair. And so every single one. But there's always this question, why does it have to be deeper than the skin? And this is the issue. It's about the fact that you are like a water bottle and you have to keep the things that are inside of you inside of you. And when they start to leak out or get cross-contaminated, you have problems. So a quote here from Michael Heiser. Uncleanness was not about morality, but rather about association with loss of life and the incompatibility of that with God's perfection. Even though the logic is simple, it feels foreign to our modern minds. Loss of blood and sexual fluids were perceived as the loss of that which created and sustained life. God was not to be associated with the loss of life, but rather with being the giver of life requiring purification after the loss of such fluids was a reminder of God's nature. Similar, purification was required after being unclean by contact with the dead. So God is the God of life and not the God of death. And as such, theology that is being taught through Leviticus is about the idea that God is the giver of life. And when you stop to being those things, you are separated. doesn't mean that you will be always separated. But it is, a, it is a distinguishing thing that is teaching theology in a way that we are just not familiar with. We like theology that is up here. Visual theology is so contrary to the way we normally think, except for the fact that we do it all the time, right? Communion and baptism are visual theology. Welcome to Leviticus. So, Let's go back. Uncleanness and separation. This is what we're thinking about here. It is not for medical or hygienic purposes. When we are looking through these, these rules, we have to understand that this is about teaching about life and death. It's about teaching about God's character and who he is. And so when we ask the question, is this for medical or hygienic purposes, we miss the point of the, the loss. 
Instead, God is the God of life and not the God of death. He is the giver of life. And when we keep that in mind, it helps to reframe things. So, a little quiz to break things up for you here. My Levitical literacy quiz. One, what can be contaminated with biblical leprosy? And no, you don't have to yell these out. These are just purely for thoughts. Skin, skin and clothing, skin, clothing, and the wall of a house. The answer is number three. All three can be contaminated with leprosy. Two, when is someone with biblical leprosy clean? When you have a white spot deeper than the skin that has white hair in it. Two, when they are fully covered with leprosy and are fully turned white. Or three, boil with reddish white spot that is deeper than the skin while white hair is in it. And the answer is number two, when they are fully covered with leprosy and are fully turned white. Now that may seem very contrary, right? We all know this, right? If you get fully covered in something, then you're clean. That's just the way it works. No. Leviticus 13, verses 12 and 13. And if the leprous person breaks out in the skin so that the leprous disease covers all the skin of the diseased person from head to foot, so far as the priest can see, then the priest shall look. And if the leprous disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. It has all turned white, and he is clean. So, final question. What is biblical leprosy? A disease that causes disfigurement, paralysis of individuals, and even loss of extremities? Or two, something else? And the answer is two. It's not what you've been told. It's something else. Now, reasons that that's true. One, it can be in a house, clothing, and skin. We don't know about any diseases that work like that. And it's definitely not leprosy when we talk about leprosy. Two, it's not contagious when fully covered. Okay? I mean, we know how leprosy works. It's not like that. Three, modern-day leprosy does not present with the same appearances, the same visual sort of marks, as what were described in Leviticus 12 and 13. In biblical leprosy, you get this white and red or whatever, and you get white hair unless it's on your forehead, and which is yellow. If you get what's called now commonly called Hansen's disease, it causes a thickening of the skin. It is lightening, but it is more gray. It is not white. You don't get any white hair in it. It's just not the same thing. Now, other reasons to continue. For, oh, and I'll hear a quote from Gilbert Lewis. It has come as a shock to learn that biblical leprosy was not our leprosy and to realize further for how long in modern times those passages in Leviticus were taken to be about the same thing. Even though the instructions for diagnosis make it clean, they were not. Continuing forward on reasons why it's not modern-day leprosy. Four, Naaman. Naaman is the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. It doesn't say he became a leper. He was a leper, and he was still allowed to function. So this is something that seems to be an issue for Israel, and prevents them from being able to be with God's people, but it is not something that prevents other people out in other nations from functioning. Five, it's a mistranslation of the word. Uh, leprosy in the Bible, it's a, from a couple different authors. 
Leprosy in the Bible. For many years, the biblical term zerat has referred to leprosy. In fact, the disease or diseases described under this name have no relation to leprosy, as it was known in the Middle Ages or today. Moreover, the term referred not only to skin disease, but also to the state of ritual, impurity, and punishment for the sins. Although the real nature of zerat remains unknown, the differential diagnosis may including, include psoriasis, favus, dematophyte infections, and the thing goes on for 23 more possible explanations for what it is, i.e., they don't know. <laughs> but the answer is, it's not biblical leprosy when we think of it. Continuing on to another one, uh, biblical leprosy is a comedy of errors um, by M.L. Davies and T.A. Davies. When the, when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek about 250 B.C., Zerat was rendered as lepra, a generic term for skin disease. Some 50 years later, microbacterial leprosy appeared in Greece and was called elephantitis because of the thickening of the skin. For some unknown reason, this, was, this diagnosis was discontinued and lepra became the official new name for it. So there's like a change in the meanings of words as things go on and then that translation basically leads to where we are today. And finally, the final reason, um, early interpretation of the laws. So the Mishnah, I'm not sure most of you, um, I wasn't familiar with this. The Mishnah is basically a um, Jewish oral tradition that was written down by the second century AD about how do you read the law and what's it for? What do you do with it? It's basically an early commentary. And when they looked at it, they said that you can pluck out the hairs as long as the priest hasn't seen it. So if you have white hair in it and you pluck it out before they see it, then you don't actually have leprosy because they can't identify it at that point. So, again, does it sound like a really problematic, contagious disease, or are they reading it differently than that? And then finally, the early Christian writers, such as Justin Martyr, Origen, and Tertullian, interpreted the Levitical rules about leprosy in terms of sin and divine retribution. So, does that mean that biblical leprosy isn't a problem? Consider those who've gotten it. Miriam, she speaks out against Moses, and she gets something that's so bad that it freaks Aaron out pretty bad, and she gets separated from the people. Uzziah gets it, because he's trying to basically function as a priest, and so he's trying to make sacrifices in the temple, and God strikes him <laughs> with leprosy, and he instantly stops what he's doing and gets out of there. So whatever it is, it's still a problem, right? Three... Gehazi, and Gehazi, again, you know, disobeys what, what he's told to do, and he gets punished. And Naaman, we aren't told why Naaman has it. We don't know. But those are, those are at least ones that we have to sort of have some idea of the fact that, one, you can get it, and two, it is still a significant issue. So then what are we to do with it? Oh, before we go on, from now on, I'm going to try to use this word, zara'at. That is the biblical pronunciation of the actual word that is, we are now translated in all our Bibles as leprosy. So I'm just going to try to use it because I want to, I want to separate the idea for us from the rest of the sermon. Leprosy is not, when we talk about leprosy in our modern day and age, it's not what we're talking about here. It is a separate thing, and we need to sort of differentiate that. So is zara'at a big deal? Two different authors have some sort of thoughts on this. 
What made Zara'at such an object of attention? Simply put, Zara'at was a visible, palpable, physical illustration of that invisible spiritual disease known as the sin nature. And we get to see that in every single one of the people who are, who are struck with it. They're disobeying. They're doing something they shouldn't be, and God brings judgment on them. Zara'at was an external revelation of internal evil, an emblem of sin which branded the person defiled by sin outwardly on the skin. Now, that still doesn't answer the question to some extent, which is, why do they do what they do, and why are they sent outside of the, t- the, the camp? So Leviticus 13, 45 and 46. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. Now, if we're reading through Leviticus, we would notice the fact that just a few chapters earlier, we actually had most of these de- those things that they're doing described to us. And it's right after the sons of Aaron bring fire they shouldn't have and get struck. And God's response to Aaron in Leviticus 10, 6 and 7 And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithmar his son, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, beware the, bewail the, the, the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. So the priests are so holy, and God is the God of life and not the God of death, that the priests have to actually be separated from death to the point of actually there's rules later on in Leviticus talking about when is it even allowed for you to mourn as a priest for death, for, your, for those who die in your family. It feels extremely offensive to us in our modern day and age, but it is this constantly teaching this theology of the fact that God is the giver of life, and if you are holy, which the priests are, then you are like him, and therefore, there is something about the separation between life and death that is so important that we have to keep that in mind. So, the person seems to be mourning almost like a death is what's going on here. They're, they're mourning a death, which is weird because who, who's, you know, who are they mourning at this point? Uh, one more, Ezekiel 24, 17. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man... Oh, sorry. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put on your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips nor eat the bread of men. So here's that final one, right? We're covering our lips just like the person is supposed to, which seems super weird. Um, I still don't really understand why, but this is for something about there is a mourning that has to do with covering your lips that makes it, that is part of mourning for those who've died. So here's this person who has zarat, and they are mourning for someone who's died. And the question is, who died? And why are they mourning them? So if we go to 2 Kings 5, 6 through 7, this is the portion where Naaman gets sent to the king of Israel, and they say, hey, fix this guy. I hear you've got somebody there who can fix them. Uh, 
And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? To kill and to make alive. Is it possible that what we're talking about is that in some way the leprous person is dead? And so we read this section and go, the, the king's type, talking in hyperbole, to make, to kill and to make alive. So we go to find one other one, Numbers 12, 11 and 12. And Aaron said to Moses, O oh my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and sinned. Let her not be as one who's dead. When he's talking about Miriam. Here's Miriam struck and Aaron says, don't let her be as one who is dead. So here is the leprous person, and of all the things they're mourning, they're mourning themselves. They're dead, which is weird because of all the dead people I've met, none of them walk around or yell unclean, unclean. So in some sense, they're dead, but clearly they're not fully dead because clearly they're alive, walking around and making noises and such, but they are separated from God. And a side here that hopefully is going to be helpful as we come back through it, one which is Every single time that um, the Bible uses, there's a word that talks about the disease of zara'at. It uses this word called nega. Now that word is always translated disease when it talks about leprosy in the Bible when you're reading through. It's only been used one time before in the entire scripture. And that is when God is talking about the final time that Passover, or that when he, the final plague, the final 10th plague. He says he's going to bring a plague on, Israel, on, on Egypt. Now, every other time that he's used plague up to this point, it's a completely different word. There is absolutely no relationship to them. This word is the only time it's used up to this point, and it's translated as plague. So there is something about the idea that maybe, again, because we recognize that zara'at maybe isn't what we talk about, it's something much deeper, that we should keep this in mind. Just tuck it in the back of your pocket or you know, wherever. We're going to just remember the fact that Passover and the plague might be significant to us as we move forward. Okay, um, snooze break for everybody. We're going to quick go through the phases of cleansing of a person. So you can close your eyes for a minute if you'd like. Overview of the phases of cleansing of Zara'at. Phase one, priest goes out of the camp to inspect the individual. If he is healed, they then take two clean birds, cedarwood, scarlet, and hyssop. Then he is clean. Wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, then wash himself. Then he's clean. He's doubly clean. Phase two, he may come out of the camp, but he must wait outside of his tent for seven days. On the seventh day, he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard and his eyebrows. He shall shave off all his hair, and then he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. Then he is clean. He's triply clean. Phase three, on the eighth day, he shall offer guilt, sin, and burnt offerings. Blood is put on the individual's ears, thumb, and big, ear, uh, and big toe. Oil is put on the leper. Leper. Then he is clean. He is quadruply clean. He is real clean at this point. He was real unclean, and now he's real clean. So we get for phase one, we get a couple things. One, two birds. One's killed. One's let go. We get blood. We get water. We get hyssop. We get wood, and we get scarlet material. This is all phase one. Now, when we read these type of ritual procedures, it's, again, very contextually weird for us because we just don't think this way. 
So if I were to tell you, for instance, that you are going about to perform a, a task and you need certain items, and I said to you, the first item is oil. You might ask yourself, what type of oil? Because that would be important. It might tell me something about the type of task I'm, I'm going to perform. For instance, do I need motor oil? Or do I need something more like olive oil? Mm. Do I need something like a funnel? Or do I need flour and baking soda? Do I need a wrench? So that would tell me something about the type of task I'm about to perform. If I know these type of things, it might give me some idea of what, I, what I'm about to have to do. And this is important. When we read these procedures, we just go, there's a lot of details. Instead of asking the question, have we seen these before, and would they tell us something about the type of task that I need to be performing? So if I were to tell you, though, for instance, you need a juicer, that would instantly tell you what type of task we're about to perform, because it's sort of a single-use item, at least as far as I'm aware. Um, <laughs> somebody will probably prove me wrong. But in general, <laughs> most of the time, this is a single-use item. You'd have a pretty good idea what we're about to do if we get this item. We're going, okay, I think I'm about to juice something. So with that being said, when we get the word that one of the items is hyssop, that is an extremely uncommon word in, in, in the Bible. It's only used a couple times. Psalm 51, it's a psalm talking about how God is going to cleanse us by using hyssop. So it seems to be drawing potentially on this other, in this passage in Leviticus. So it gives us some insight that there's something cleansing going on, but it doesn't tell us where did we get this hyssop in the first place. 1 Kings 4.33 is when it talks about all of the wise sayings that Solomon says. And it talks about how he talks about the cedar and the hyssop. Oh, interesting. Both those are in there in the same place. Um, Numbers 19 is a spot where you have someone who has touched a dead body. They are outside of the camp, and they have all the same exact items that we just saw, but they do something completely different with them. They take every single one of them, they stick them in the fire, and they burn them. Then they take all that, they mix it with, uh, mix it with water, and then that makes people clean who are touched to the corpse, which is weird. So we get something of the fact that like, there is something there, but it almost seems to be draw it, it goes and uses it in a slightly different way. So the first time that we ever get it outside of Leviticus 14 is Exodus 12, the Passover. Pull that thing out, we tucked out. Remember that? Okay. All right. So why would we even be thinking about the Passover? One, let's just notice the list of things that sort of overlaps here. Now, the animal's killed. Sure enough, there's an animal killed in the Passover, right? One thing dies, another thing goes free, right? The people go free because the, the lamb dies in their place. Two, you get blood. Three, they pass through water. Four, you get the hyssop. Five, you get wood in the posts, the doorposts that are marked, right? You don't get the scarlet material. We're going to ignore that for now. And then we're going to wait seven days, which we get told is that we have the seven days where you have to keep something out of your house. Leaven. In the same way, the leper is now kept outside of the house for seven days. So you now potentially have a portable Passover, because you don't want to bring your, you know, your whole doorposts with you as you go for these things. So you have a portable Passover. Why in the world do we want a portable Passover for this? What in the possible use could this be? So we'd recognize that as we go through Exodus, we recognize that what's happening is we get a birth of a nation. Nothing too shocking there. The people go down as, an, as an, in a people group, a very small family. And by the time they come out, they're a nation. In between, they're slaves. They aren't a nation. 
They're just a group that's being, being mistreated. And so God brings them out a nation, moving them forward. Exodus, as we go through Exodus and we see God's judgment, he is decreating the world. Everything that's sort of been set up in Genesis 1 gets undone. You, by the end, you even get darkness and the death of the firstborn, so you get a complete undoing of creation. And so you'd expect that you would see something coming up out again. And sure enough, what do you see being brought out by the water? But Israel. Israel becomes the new creation. They are brought up out of the water, that new nation. So here we are. We brought that up. What new creation will come out of it? Sure enough, there it is. There's Israel. So we come through that. So we go back to the Passover. And the Passover is the event at which they are fully brought free, right? They go free at this point. They come through a doorway marked in blood as they are born into something new. There is a birth of a nation as they are coming out. Isaiah 44 even draws on this idea. (laughs) But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. So he calls Israel out from the womb, and he, now we have a birth of a, of, a, of a nation, which makes a lot more sense why all of a sudden you get all this whining and crying as you start to go through this. <laughs> they're, they're maturing. He's bringing them out from something where they're very immature, and they're being matured. Before they can enter the, you know, enter the, the land, they have to be matured because they're not. They're not ready. They weren't a nation, and now God has made them a nation. He's borne them out into something new, but they have to be matured so they can be brought forward. So if we go back now to phase one and two of the cleansing, what I'm suggesting is is that the leper has been, he has died. He He has died. He has been separated from the community. He is no longer part of the community. And so he needs to participate in the same thing that the rest of the community participated in. They have to, he has to be born again in the same way that all of Israel was born. He died, and now he has to be born again. So if we were to see that, for instance, we might notice that in some of the stories that have to do with leprosy. For instance, 2 Kings 5, 14. So we went, uh, this is Naaman at the very end. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So here he is, he's restored, but he's not just flesh new, but like flesh like a little child. Numbers 12, if we go back to that portion where it talks about how Miriam is like she's dead, Aaron goes on from there, and he doesn't just say she's dead. Let her not be as one, who's, as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when she comes out of her mother's womb. So not only is she dead, but she was like she was never born. It's like she, when she came out, she was dead before she was even born. And so here we are. We need her to be born to something new. We have a leper. He is in the realm of sin and death, and he is having to be reborn. Does this start to sound at all like things we hear in the New Testament? <laughs> and so we're being reborn as we're coming through because we were, he is separated from his people He is separated from God because he is in death. And now he's being brought into new life. 
So phase two and three. So here we have a person who died and he's been born again, but he is allowed into the camp, but he's still kept out of his tent, which means that he is both part of the, the people, but he hasn't fully been integrated back in. So he is there, but he's not been fully brought back. So we get another ritual reminding us again of this fact that when we, when we read stuff, we should be asking, what type of tools are we being asked to use? So in this case, we get wash and water, sit outside of the tent for seven days, some animal offerings. Doesn't usually tell us very much that one because that's all of Leviticus, right? It's just constantly animal offerings. Ear, thumb, and big toe covered with blood. That one sounds familiar. And oil for dedication. And sure enough, there is a procedure that just happened recently that does exactly those same things only a couple chapters before in Leviticus 8. The priest does ex- almost exactly these same things. There are differences, but most of this is exactly the same. The priest sits out of a, outside of the tabernacle for seven days. The priest is marked with his ear, his thumb, and his big toe. The priest offers animal offerings. The priest is dedicated with oil. All of these things are exactly the same things that are happening. And so we get this point where the leper has been brought to life. And just in the same way, the priest has to be raised from clean to holy. The, the leper is from unclean to clean. It's like a status upgrade. You don't, if you're playing a video game and you have to do all of these different steps to get to that like, next level, this is that next level. Instead of having to collect X number of coins or whatever else, you get to do this procedure and you're upgraded. Now, people have pointed out in this case that if we, we recognize that this brings them covenantally, they're now finally allowed into the, taberna- into the tab- tabernacle area again. They weren't before. They were separated. So they were both raised covenantal- or, um, community and now covenantally. They are brought into all of the things that they're supposed to be. They're brought into all of that. They're raised. So let's look at how Mark, or let's just look at how the New Testament applies all of this. Mark 1, verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring and kneeling to him, If you will make me clean, moved with pity. If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. So Jesus doesn't just deal with the heart condition of the leper. He both heals him physically, but it says he cleanses him. So he becomes that cleansing that brings about all of it. He brings all of it. And so what you know, will be interesting is here he is, he's both dealing with some, a physical issue and a spiritual issue. It'd be really interesting if, for instance, the next story in these, this one happened to do with somebody else being healed from something physically and spiritually. Which, sure enough, there it is. Jesus heals the paralytic. Right after that, he deals with a physical issue and a spiritual issue. And Luke tells it the same way. There's a leper healed, dealing with both a spiritual issue and a physical issue, and the same thing. Then there's a person who's dealing with a spiritual issue and a physical issue, and Jesus deals with both. That's how both these, these authors start off Jesus's, his, his work. They're showing the fact that Jesus doesn't come just to address some spiritual issue. 
he comes to address all of the issues. He's dealing both with the physical and the spiritual issues. He raises not just a part of a person, he raises the whole person. That's how, we, how Jesus is doing this. Final one, final one John 19. I'm sorry, John. Yeah, John 19. And this Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, that all, I can talk. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to, fill, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate for their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced him with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that scripture might be filled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him who they have pierced. Now, if we read this in the past, we'd have, for instance, pointed out things like they now have medical evidence that when you see someone who's died and and there's blood and water separate, that that's an indication that they are fully dead. Okay, sure, great. But that's not what the biblical authors are trying to communicate. We saw hyssop. Only one other time in all of the New Testament is used and in Hebrews, again, and he's referencing back to Leviticus. We get hyssop, we get blood, we get water, and we get wood, and he's outside of the city. Jesus is the, 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 the true fulfillment of all of this. He is the one who took all of our sins. We were in the realm, realm of sin and death. To even tie it back, to the Passover, we were slaves of sin. And God brought us forth into new life. We are reborn because of what he has done. We have been transformed. Questions? Comments? So, as, we, as I close, Leviticus teaches us theology that is way more than what we often sort of approach it or expect it to do. It takes a reframing. It takes a step back. It takes a realization that at times we need to sort of recontextualize things to realize that when we're talking about things, there is something about the fact that Leviticus teaches theology through tasks and procedures, and that seems counterintuitive to us. But there is something about that. That is the way God revealed his truth to a people, and that we're invited to relearn that, to recognize that. And when we do, we see the gospel story laid out, and we all of a sudden start to recognize where do all of the New Testament authors start to pull all of these different things? Because if you just look through, you don't get, where do we get a rebirth? You know, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, 
says, you're a teacher of the law. Don't you know that you need to be reborn? And you go, I didn't read that in there. Sure, sure you did. Now you do. Which also, side point here, which is, he's, when we say, what are they teaching these kids in school? It's not a new thing. <laughs> it's at least 2,000 years old. What are they teaching these kids in school? Um, anyway, um, so here we are, and Jesus is, is pointing out that if you read the law, you see these truths already laid out for us, inviting us to see the fact that Jesus is going to fulfill all of this and bring about true redemption and restoration. He will bring us all from death to life and new life and rebirth. Amen.